Well, if you have a Bible, turn to the uh, book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, as we continue our series, looking at the mothers of Jesus. The mothers of Jesus. And we come now to Ruth. What we are doing is we are walking through these women who are listed in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And so we've looked at Tamar, we've looked at Rahab, and now we come to Ruth. And uh, aren't we happy to have a sweet story uh, for once in this series? I'm going to be reading a lot. Uh, There's a lot to read here to try to give you a sense. We're actually going over the entire book, so good luck to me uh, and to you guys. But uh, we're going to try. I'm trying to read portions of the book here and there to give you a sense of the story uh, this morning. So follow along in your own Bibles as I read out loud. Hear God's word. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman Naomi was left without her two sons and without her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband." And then she kissed them and lifted her up their voices. They lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Uh, would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. From where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and therefore I will be, there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And we're going to drop down to chapter 3 of that same book. We're going to read verses 1 through 11 from there. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, this is Ruth's mother-in-law, they're now in Israel, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may go well with you? Is not Boaz our relative? With whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash yourself and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies and then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. 
At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. And lastly, we'll read a few verses from the end of the story in Ruth chapter four. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And then the woman said to no, the women of the city said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He should be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman, women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This sends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. Well, we're looking at Jesus' family tree as it's talked about in Matthew chapter 1, in which there are five women mentioned there. And in ancient Near Eastern society, uh, when you have genealogies, women are rarely, if ever, mentioned. But Matthew mentions not just one, Jesus' mother, but five different women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Aren't you looking forward to our Christmas Eve service on Bathsheba? Adultery and murder... Now, the last one is Mary. Now, th- this one, though, is the sweetest of them, other than maybe Mary. Uh, it is a beloved and beautifully crafted story. In fact, it is a literary, from a literary perspective, it is genius writing. But even though Ruth is the one mentioned in the genealogy, and even though Ruth is the one who is the title character of this book, the main character being acted upon is Naomi. This is Naomi's story as much as it is Ruth's story. It is Naomi's husbands and sons who die. These are her daughters-in-law it's talking about. These are her losses. It's her return to her hometown, her relatives, her God, and ultimately her grandson. The story begins with a place where Naomi is at, which is famine, destitute, and childless. And the story ends with an old woman holding a baby in a rocking chair, tenderly cradling him, and she is finally at rest. But how Naomi got to that place and moved from famine to fullness. That is the engine of the story. And like most engines, like the story that we often would love to hear and look at, especially if you want to look at, watch a Lifetime movie or a Hallmark movie, is that that what drives this story is love. It is love. It is the love of God and the love of of these people for Naomi and how God provides for for her in his love in the midst of the story. So we're going to break this down into two parts this morning. We're going to walk through the narrative by simply looking at the three main characters, Naomi and Ruth, so the characters of this love story, and the second part is I will simply give you some observations from this love story because there's something far more going on under the surface than merely, merely a Hallmark movie. So let's start with the first character, Naomi. Naomi. The first five verses are stunning in their descent, if you were to read it. It is a cascading litany of disaster that happens to Naomi's life. The destruction happens over the course of about 10 years or so, but it is covered in a mere 71 words in the Hebrew. The disaster unfolds this way. Naomi's family has found itself in the midst of a famine. Now, there is a cruel irony in this because Israel was in the land of Canaan, which was supposed to be known as what? 
the land of bread and milk and honey. And then they're living in the city of Bethlehem. And the literal name for the city of Bethlehem is city of bread. And so there is a cruel irony here. The opening scene of this book is that they are a people fleeing the city of bread to find food in another country. If you can imagine the scene, like something out of an old Western, a family is departing a withered town, tumbleweeds rolling down the main thoroughfare, people kind of stumbling through the streets from lack of food, and the, the family passes under the welcome sign to Bethlehem, now graffitied and crooked, hanging off its hinges with a painting of a basket overflowing with bed, uh, painted on the sign, mocking them as they leave. That is the opening scene. And not only do they have to leave Bethlehem, the city of bread, but they go to where? Moab. And every good Israelite who reads this and hears about someone having to go to Moab, their response would be, yuck, that's disgusting. The Moabites, their whole whole people group began, if you know this story, another wonderful story from God's word, where Laban's own daughters uh, have incestuous relationship with him and uh, have children. More ick factor from God's words. So to go to Moab, you have to be pretty desperate. Well, things go from bad to worse for Naomi, successive tragedies follow. First, Elimelech, her husband, dies, and so now she's a widow. And she did have two sons. They took Moabite wives, which was its own kind of grief, because the Moabites worshipped a god named Chemosh. And Chemosh was known for his preferred form of worship was child sacrifice. But that ended up not really being a problem that Naomi needed to worry about. Because you see, there's a detail that the passage we quickly pass over, which is this. Malon and Kilion marry Orpah and Ruth, and it says that they lived there about 10 years. What we're to see in that is that they have married these foreign wives, these pagan wives, but apparently they were not merely pagan wives, but they were barren women as well. And as painful as infertility would be today, it is nothing to the, compared to the pain of being infertile then. For it was the full measure of a woman's worth to bear children. And then the final death knell for Naomi was that these two sons, Malon and Kilion, who have married Moabite women but have not had any children, these two sons of Naomi now die. So, let me give you a picture of where Naomi is at. She lost her husbands, and she lost her two sons, and she has no grandchildren. Now, a woman in the ancient Near East who has no male protector is a is woman who has no economic support whatsoever. This is not merely just a sad day for Naomi. The facts stated here are essentially this, that Naomi's life is now filled with shame and with utter failure, and you might as well consider her life to be over. There were widows, and then there was Naomi. She was too old. Her parents are no longer living. She had nowhere to go. She's too old to remarry, and she has no heirs to look after. That was the welfare and the social security system then. You had children and grandchildren who would then be able to rise up and care for the fields and to provide for you in your old age. And when they buried Naomi's sons, they might have well as buried Naomi too. She has no means of existence or purpose. She is left destitute, bereft, and surrounded by grief. But she hears that the famine has broken back in Bethlehem. And so she encourages her daughters to return to their Moabite families. And she's going to head back to, at least back to Israel. But Ruth ends up going with her. We're going to look at that in just a minute. But when Naomi returns to Bethlehem, when they come back, they are the talk of the town. But not in a good way. 
There is a subtle detail in verse 19 of chapter one where the people, the women of the city of Bethlehem go, is this really Naomi? This tells you this, these 10 years have been so hard on Naomi that she has gone through so much pain and suffering and such a physical toll that she is barely recognizable to those who have known her for much of her life. And then in a cruel play on words, Naomi says to the people, do not call me Naomi because Naomi means sweetness or pleasantness, but call me Mara, which means bitter. And then she says, the kicker is in verse 21. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has now brought me back empty. By her own reckoning, she is now empty, bitter, and she blames God. And she says her conclusion of how she views life is that God's hand has gone out against me. He has persecuted me. He has attacked me. Libby Groves, who's a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary and has written a number of books on, um, actually on widowhood, and the difficulty of losing a spouse, because she did. She said this, Naomi is an Israelite. She's supposed to be one of Yahweh's own children, and yet his hand has persecuted her. There is deep, ancient, forever binding, covenantal anguish in her complaint. Yahweh is her God, and yet he appears to be against her. He has not only allowed, but orchestrated the many holocausts of which she is the sole survivor, left destitute and without hope. That hurts. You might expect to be treated badly by some stranger, but not by your dad, not by your father in heaven. You see, Naomi felt abandoned by God, and in fact, she says as much. In other words, what Naomi is, is she's a female Job. And whereas Job was a male and can at least go try to make a new fortune for himself, and he was still married, Naomi has nothing. And so she's crying out to God, and she's saying, God, where is your covenant love? Why have you abandoned me? Naomi's in the place that many of you have found yourself perhaps at one point in your life. And perhaps it's the place where you find yourself this week. And we must be brief on our applications this morning, but I do just want to draw this out because this is the, it is the people of God, Naomi representing them, is, is the main character being acted upon in the story. That if you've ever been a Naomi, that you have asked the question about, God, where are you? And God, where are you? you appear to be against me. God, why would you allow this litany of disasters to enter into my life? Perhaps you're asking these same questions today. Or perhaps you you fear the most that God may bring you to a place in your life in the future where you be crying out the same things that Naomi does. And you ask the question, is God good? Does God care for the brokenhearted and for a lonely, widowed woman? Does God see here, does his steadfast love, will it pierce through the sorrows and the sufferings that he has brought into her life? Has his promises for her failed? These are the cries of the people of God when in God's providence he allows us to suffer. Now if that is you, then listen up because God does provide for Naomi. Now before returning to Israel, knowing that there is not much prospects for two widowed Moabites Naomi encourages Orpah and Ruth to return home. So Naomi begs the girls to return to their own family. She prayed for them, a prayer that she could no longer pray for herself in verse eight of chapter one. She says, may the Lord deal kind with you and may the Lord grant that you may find rest with a new husband. And she kissed them and Orpah leaves, but Ruth refuses to leave. And in this act, Naomi moves to the side and Ruth becomes the primary agent of God's movement in this story. And so we move on to character number two, Ruth. 
With startling determination, Ruth embraces Naomi. She resolutely digs in her heels and insists that Naomi, all the arguments stop, and she makes this covenant vow, these profound words that you would do well to use for marriage vows, perhaps. Ruth said this, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do to me, and more also, if anything but death, parts me from you. Ruth makes a wildly courageous decision to bind herself to Naomi. That's what she does. This is a binding covenant, a promise. And as modern readers, we don't necessarily pick up the full danger that Ruth is finding herself in and how sacrificial and how courageous this promise is. Ruth is now going to a land she does not know. She will now be an immigrant. She's going with a woman who has no means of providing for herself, much less providing for Ruth. She's going to a people who hate her people. The Moabites are disgusting in the eyes of Israel. They are to have nothing to do with them. And so she will be ostracized and hated. She's going to a people who will hate her probably, and in fact put her in danger. She can kiss marriage possibilities goodbye, because no good Israelite boy is going to marry a Moabite woman. But more than simply being marginalized or ridiculed, she is in true danger in the city, uh, in in the countryside of Israel. Later statements by both Naomi and Boaz in chapter 2 command Ruth not to wander to other fields because they are afraid that she will endure all sorts of abuse and violence from others in the community. When you realize that, the statement that Ruth is making is all the more astonishing. Just as the, the, the narrator punches you in the face with the sheer degree of Naomi's losses in verses 3 through 5, we now see something of a poetic refrain here in, in Ruth's covenant act of love. This is a poem in actuality. Your life is my life. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you die, I die. And here she says, today I bind myself to you for the rest of my life. So help me God. So she has bound herself to Naomi and to the Lord and to the people of Israel, come what may. And Ruth goes back with Naomi. And Ruth must become the primary breadwinner. So she goes out to the fields to figure out if she can glean. That is where you pick up the droppings of the main gleaners and the harvesters to see if you can pick up some, some, some scraps of wheat behind them. And she just so happens, it says in chapter 2, and we're going to come back to the just so happens. She just so happens comes to the field of Boaz. And her loyalty and her loyal character towards Ruth has been found out about to by Boaz. And in verse 11 of chapter 2, he says, I have heard what you have done for your mother-in-law. Stay here, and I will provide for you, and I will protect you. Boaz is Naomi's relative. And when Naomi hears that Ruth has gotten the attention of Boaz, Naomi suddenly, who has been this destitute and distraught woman, gets really, really excited. She says, Boaz, he's a relative. He's a kinsman. He's somebody who could redeem us. And Naomi begins to hatch a plan. Now, this is chapter three, and let's be honest, this plan is weird. Here's what the plan entails. Ruth, you've been out in the fields. I want you to go get a bath. We're gonna make you smell really good. We're gonna make you look really good. 
Boaz is hanging on the threshing floor. They usually have parties at night after the weed has come in. They're drinking and eating. It's a great party. You can sneak in. It'll be great. And when he kind of gets a little sloshed and decides it's time for him to go to bed, what I want you to do is I want you to sneak up next to him and I want you to um, reveal his toes. And actually in the Hebrew, it might be a euphemism for something else, but let's just say it was his toes. And he might get a little bit cold. And what I want you to do is I want you to sidle up next to him. And and when he wakes up and realizes there's a woman laying at his feet, I, I want you to say, hey, it's, I'm offering myself to you, big fella. Now you make some decisions. That is Naomi's plan I don't necessarily suggest this for the plan for your daughters. But this is what Ruth does. She follows her uh, through all her instructions, except when Boaz wakes up and realizes that Ruth is at his feet, she then deviates from the plan. And what she says, she speaks to Boaz. She doesn't wait for Boaz to speak to her. She takes charge here. She is the main agent moving. And she says this in Ruth chapter three, verse nine. Boaz, spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. Let's be clear as what she's asking here. To say spread your wings over me is a marriage proposal. She is getting down on one knee and saying, Boaz, put a ring on it, big fella. But notice she doesn't simply say, hey, will you marry me? She says, marry me because you are a redeemer. Understand that what Ruth is after here is not after sex, and she's not just after marriage, but she's proposing to Boaz a marriage that will ask far more of Boaz than any mere marriage. Ruth says, you're a redeemer, Boaz. And that brings us to our third character, Boaz. Ruth says, you're a redeemer, and what she is saying to Boaz is, you are a kinsman redeemer. And here we have to do some, we have some explaining to do. A kinsman redeemer, God was so, uh, felt it was so important for the people of God to be provided for, and for, they had two great concerns within Israel amongst the family lines. One is that you would have children that could carry on the family name, and that two, that you would not ever lose your family land. And so God has set up, even in the Old Testament law, one Leverite marriage, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, which is that if one, one boy has been given to a wife and she's not had kids and he dies, another son or even another family member is supposed to marry her so that she may have a child and that child will bear and carry on the family name of her deceased husband. The other issue that God puts in his law is the issue of kinsmen who redeem your land which is where if someone in Israel gets into debt or has to sell off a portion of their land in order to provide for themselves, that there is another family member who can come in, redeem the debt, pay for the debt in order to buy back the land for that family line. That is what Ruth is asking Boaz to do. In other words, what Ruth is saying is this, Boaz, I'm a woman who has been barren and it's possible I'm not even gonna be able to bear children. I'm a Moabite woman who is an immigrant and I bring nothing into this marriage. There is no dowry for you. In fact, if you marry me, your children, the children that we might bear will not bear your name. They'll bear the name of Elimelech and Naomi. And whatever the land that you redeem on my behalf and the debts that you pay, they will not be possessed by you. They will be possessed by the family of Elimelech. That is what she's asking him to do, to take on this role. And so after working through some kinsman redeemer red tape in the early part of chapter four, Boaz though decides that it is worth it and he marries Ruth. And very quickly at the very end, they have a baby 
And that baby will carry on the family line of Elimelech and Naomi. And the woman whose life, Naomi, was empty is now full. And the story ends quite sweetly with Naomi rocking a baby on her lap. And everyone lives happily ever after. Thank you for coming to Storytime with Andrew. Well, it's easy to read this as a superficially typical love story, right? You know, this is something like, you know, the Bible's homage to a Hallmark Christmas story, is it? Isn't it? Like, Boaz owns a Christmas tree farm, and, he, and here comes the, and he, in, in a grocery store, and he has a, suddenly he has the most beautiful cottage. I have no idea how he affords that with a Christmas tree farm. And here comes little Ruth, who has, who has lost her husband. She has moved to Vermont with her mother-in-law, and here they are playing in the snow, and she goes to work at the Christmas tree farm. She falls in love with the boss and has a baby. That's essentially what has gone on here. But God is telling a much deeper story, not about just two humans' love and faithfulness to each other, but about God's love to us. I'm going to give you three observations from this story to close our time this morning. Observation one, we see the hiddenness of God's love. The hiddenness of God's love. Remember in chapter one, Naomi believes that God has hidden his face from her. He seems to have exited and removed himself from the story of Naomi's life. She says at the end of chapter one, I went away full, but I've come back empty. She could not see any part of her life in which God's love appeared to be there. And this is what sorrow and grief and depression will do to you, will it not? Have you ever been to a place in your life in which you are so grieved and so at a loss and the clouds of depression hang over you so deeply that when you look around your life, you can't see anything good? That's where Naomi's at. But with Naomi, as she sauntered into Bethlehem and made these pronouncements, if she she had swung her elbow with a little bit of width, she would have hit somebody called Ruth, who had just made a covenant vow to her and was the representation of God's covenant love that still remained in Naomi's life. God had not abandoned her. He had given her Ruth. And sometimes God's provision... In the midst of our sorrow and difficulty, the darkness sits so heavy that we cannot even see the very things that God has given us to support us in the most difficult and dark times. Roy Lauren, who's a commentator on 2 Corinthians, he, he actually tells the story of a time where there's a guy who was um, late on a construction project and he was up on a very high wall uh, on, a, on a large building and was working at night. And the course of working up on, the, on this high wall, he fell. And he screamed as he fell. He, he kind of stumbled and fell off this wall. And he, he, he grabbed onto the ledge of the wall as he fell. And he held there and he held there. And he's, but over time, his, his, his hands got weaker and weaker. And he could no longer hold himself until suddenly his, his hands let go. And he screamed again. And he fell a full three inches onto scaffolding that had been below him the entire time. And he could not see in the dark. And so it is us in the midst of our troubles. And this is, you know, this is one of the things that emotions does to you. It lies to you. It says that the darkness will not ever go away. The darkness has taken away all light. And yet God is providing her Ruth in the midst of her darkness. God works even when we cannot see. And sometimes it seems that he prefers to work in the shadows and the hidden places. And here we might connect to the Christmas story. Jesus doesn't come to the halls of glory, right? Where does he come? He comes to an outpost in little Bethlehem, not even in the city, but out in a barn. No one knows about his birth until the angels share the news with a few lowly shepherds. But that's it. 
The wise men don't come along for another three or four years. He comes in silence and in the midst of the darkness. Scholars note that, in, it's interesting, in the book of Ruth, you see no miracles. There are no visions. There are no angels. God is very, barely mentioned other than to uh, cry out and talk about how God hasn't been there for Naomi. In fact, God, God appears to be, have, not be a part of the, the story at all. But it's interesting, in Ruth chapter 2, verse 3, and I told you I'd come back to this, it says that Ruth, that we, when she went out to glean, it just so happened that she went to the field of Boaz. The Hebrew phrase there says, she just happened to come to the part of the field belonging Boaz. It actually mentions the word luck or chance twice in the midst of that. Therefore, the precise uh, translation of Ruth chapter two, verse three could go like this. As luck would have it, she chanced upon the field of Boaz. As luck would have it. In other words, the writer of Ruth is making this striking understatement to point out the unseen hand of God that was guiding Ruth from moment by moment from the time she walked out of the house until she arrived there to Boaz's fields. God's workings, which we often think are supposed to come through miracles, are primarily, though, through the common providences and the, the, the chances that happen in our life. And maybe like the people in this book, you have not received a vision or a dream or some great miracle. An angel has not visited you in the midst of your darkness. But perhaps you just so happened, just so happened to come along some other form of God's provision. And you maybe, maybe there we might see that God is working in a thousand ways, even in the midst of darkness and loss and suffering and sorrow. And perhaps even he is using your particular pains to provide for you even there. And so it was Naomi. She couldn't see it. But my call to you today would be this. If you're at a place like Naomi, cling to him until he reveals himself. Cling to him. He is always working still in the background, in the shadows, in the darkness. He is there. Observation number two, it's the cost of God's love. We see this in the covenant love displayed by both Ruth and Boaz. Ruth's covenant vow happens in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, and in this covenant vow, Ruth displays incredible love. Love for us is often a vague word, but it is not vague in the Bible. It always comes with an element that requires and demands death of the person who will love. Paul Miller in his book on Ruth said this, death in the Bible is at the center of love. Well, for Ruth to love Naomi, it means this, death. In order to give Naomi comfort and companionship and any food, Ruth must give up her friends, her family, the possibility of a husband and children. In fact, her entire future, Ruth embraces hopelessness so that she might give hope to Naomi in the midst of her darkness. Death is at the center of Ruth's love to her. Here's how um, Carolyn Custis James put it in her book on Ruth. With both eyes open to the consequences of her actions, Ruth slams and bolts the door on her own future. She clings tenaciously to the despairing Naomi and then cries out for the heavens to fall on her if she fails to keep her word. It takes my breath away. This is covenantal love. And don't you realize that when Ruth looked at Naomi, she said to herself, if I keep my life, then Naomi loses hers. I'm, so I'm going to go out of my way to lose my life, to give up every shred of evidence of my life, of every good, in order that I might do good for her. So that out of, I give up whatever riches I have, and I become poor, so that Naomi might become rich. And in this, she reflects the Son of God, who will come from her very family line, does she not? 
That what an unbelievable picture of Christ's incarnational uh, love for us. And that is what Christmas is, is the covenant hesed love of God who says, this is how far I will go for you. I will become an immigrant. And God did not give up Moab to come to Israel. God gave up heaven to come down here to earth so that he might give up his life so he might come alongside those who are impoverished. And he says, I give up the riches of heaven so that you might become rich. This is what love costs. And Ruth was willing to pay it. And we see the same in Boaz. Remember his role as the sacrificial role as a kinsman redeemer. Ruth wants more than a husband. She wants someone who will buy back the family land and pay the debts and give Naomi a child that will bear her name. In other words, Ruth is saying to Boaz, marry me, a woman who comes with no connections, with no tangible goods. Marry me and the children we will have will not bear your name. Marry me and you'll have to pay the family debts in order to buy back land and you will not own them. So will you marry me? And he says, I will put a ring on that finger. In other words, I want you to see that Boaz is saying yes to the dress, but to say yes to the dress, it means he has to sacrifice much. You see what it costs Boaz to enter into marital union with Ruth. And this is the story of the Bible, that you and I were part of the family of Adam. And he dragged us from the house of bread that is the garden by his sin. And his family line is, 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 is a walking line of disaster, of death and disease and infertility, that we are a, have a famine of righteousness, that we have none in our lives. And yet what Jesus did is he says, I will enter into the family so that I may redeem Adam's family, all the people of the earth, so that I may bring them into my line and make them mine. I'll pay their debts of sin and I will put upon them my name and my affection. And you look at your life and perhaps you look at it and you say, my life feels empty, it feels unfulfilled, it feels lonely, and those things may all be true, but when you look at the love of Ruth and Boaz and as they, as they are a shadow of the love of God, you can never say, I am unloved. I am unloved. You cannot say that. For in Boaz and Ruth, we have the shadow of what God is gonna do for us in Christ Jesus. Third observation to close, the fullness in God's love. Chapter four is intentionally written to show that there is a reversal from chapter one. Naomi in chapter one feels cursed by God. At the end of chapter four, who, what's happening? The women of the city are rising up and calling Naomi blessed. At the end of chapter one, Naomi is a woman full of mourning. At the end of chapter four, she's a woman in celebration. At the end of chapter one, she's a woman of bitterness. At the end of chapter four, she's full of joy. At the end of chapter one, not everything that is in her life is death. And now at the end of chapter four, what we have in her life is life and life anew. The book of Ruth opens with three funerals and it ends with a wedding and a baby. She goes from emptiness and famine to a life of fullness with a family from emptiness to fullness, and the women of Bethlehem rise up and they say, that Ruth, she's better than seven sons. She's better than seven sons. And God's redemptive story, what he is doing with us is he is taking us from as a people of emptiness and he fills us up. And the narrator of, Ruth, of this book has one last little artistic flourish. It's the ending, and so it's called the epilogue there, where it, 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 after saying that Obed's gonna be the father of David, it then goes and gives kind of a, um, a, a, its own genealogy. It goes back a few generations, all the way back up to David. It says this in, verse, uh, in verses five, and Matthew chapter one picks up on this. 
It says this in Matthew 1, verse 5 and 6, the same genealogy. It says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. And if you were to stay at the end of this movie of Ruth, that's where Ruth ends. If you're to stay there, you ever going to do a movie and the credits roll and then there's extra scenes? Well, if you were to stay for a very long time after the credits roll, even after King David, and you wait and you wait and you wait, and you wait till Matthew chapter one and the rest of the Bible, you'd come to this in verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was Jesus, born Jesus, who was called the Christ. There is a much greater king being pointed to in Ruth four than David. This line is gonna go all the way to King Jesus. And here's the point. Naomi's life is represented as being full because she has Obed, a mere child, because she has gotten to take hold of the son born in Bethlehem, and that makes her life full, full of joy in life. And you and I, if you and I, you, we can be filled up, but not because you take hold of a husband or a spouse. That's not ultimately what's gonna fill you up. And not because you have children or grandchildren, that's ultimately not what's gonna fill you up. But the fullness of life ultimately comes when you take hold of the son who was born in Bethlehem, who is the son of God. That's when your life goes from emptiness to fullness. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I came so that they may have life and life to the full. But the fullness of life ultimately comes through Jesus. And so here's the question to all of you Naomi's out there who may be in a season of difficulty in darkness in this room, the call to you is to cling and to cradle in your arms this son. To say, I do not know when the darkness will lift. I do not know when this sorrow will leave my life. I don't know why this suffering is here, but I do know this. I am never, never, never unloved. And even in the midst of sorrow and suffering, my life can be full because I can cling to the son of Bethlehem. And his name is Jesus. If that's you this morning, I invite you to do that. Release all the other things that you're clinging to and cling to Jesus this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you how the whole, whole of scripture and every story points to not just our need for you, but points to the coming Christ. And so, Lord, I, I particularly want to pray this morning for those who, have, who are feeling lost and alone, who would long to be married and they're not, who would long to have children and they don't, who did have children, but their children have wandered from you, who they long to have grandchildren, but their, children, their grandchildren are kept from them. And they're looking at you, Lord, and they're going, what in the world? This is not the plan. My life was once full and now it feels empty. So Heavenly Father, I pray that anybody who is in that place, that this morning that they would, take, they would bring their tears to you, they would be able to give voice, just like Naomi did, of their frustration and their cries. And Lord, would you, would you come and by your spirit fill them up? Yes, Lord, in this deep and dark and broken world, would you fill them up with the joy of Jesus? That even if you don't give them the husband or the child or if the children of this world do not return home, that they would say, my cup overfloweth because I have him. I have him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.